Hello and welcome to another edition of The More the Merrier with Donna G. Special focus today on the Toronto International Film Festival. I'm joined by South African director Ian Gabriel and the cast of Death of a Whistleblower, a political thriller about a determined journalist chasing a corruption story whose seeds were sown during the apartheid years and continue to blossom in post-apartheid South Africa. It screens September the 9th at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, September the 10th, 17th at the Scotiabank Theatre. I'll be joined also by guitarist Stevie Salas, executive producer of Rumble, the Indians Who Rock the World, and I chat with him about his co-director role with James Burns in the Canadian documentary Boil Alert. Our guide through this film is Leila Stat, a Haudenosaunee mother who shares her personal stories while connecting us to the environmental racism impacting reservations from Ontario, Canada to the Navajo Nations in the U.S. It screens September 15th and 16th at the Scotiabank Theatre. But up first, I reconnect with director-writer Carolina Markowitz from Charcoal at TIFF 22 about the world premiere of her film Toll, Pedagio, which tells the story of a Brazilian mother, Maeve Jenkins, willing to commit crimes to pay for expensive conversion therapy for her gay son, played by Juan Alvarenga. It screened September 8th, 9th, and 16th at the Scotiabank Theatre. The Toronto International Film Festival runs September 7th to the 17th. For all details concerning TIFF, the website is www.tiff.net. If you want to reach them on their socials, they are at TIFF underscore net. As for me, you can always reach me at www.ciut.fm. Tell your friends if they want to listen live to click Sundays 1 to 2 p.m. And you'll hear The More the Merrier with Donna G. My socials are at TMTM with Donna G on Instagram and Facebook. You can access my podcast from the CIUT website or from my Instagram. Again, at TMTM with Donna G. But now, here's my interview with Carolina Markowitz about Toll. Carolina, welcome back to The More the Merrier with Donna G. We spoke last year about your film Charcoal. And this time around, you're not only, you not only have another film called Toll, Pedagio, but you also will be the recipient of the TIFF Emerging Talent Award presented by MGM. How do you feel about your accolades? Donna, it's very good to speak to you again. I am very happy and, you know, very, very flattered and honored. I can't wait to have the world premiere at TIFF. Of all, it's a film that is very important to me as a filmmaker and as a human being. And I feel so honored about the award, about the tribute award. And TIFF has always supported my voice as a filmmaker and encouraged me. And this award makes me even more eager to continue doing those, you know, risky films about these themes that I like to, to bring to the table about, you know, shady things about the contradictions of people of human beings which is you know what i enjoy most doing so i'm very happy and thrilled to be there soon so having seen charcoal which rated very high on my uh favorites list uh last year now having seen toll i can say that i love your writing I love your directing, and I'm glad that you're using some of the same cast members um, as you did in previous films because they are a joy to watch. They're, they, they're in different films, but they always seem like real people to me. So thank you very much for that. And having said that, you wrote Toll, uh, this film about a mom who wants to have her gay son undergo conversion therapy. You wrote this with um, Maeve Jenkins in mind. Well, you know, it's funny because when I started writing it, I had her on my mind. I think she's an amazing actress. I feel very happy about listening to you because I agree. I have the same feeling. So it's very good to hear from you that 
uh, you have the you know naturality feeling with the actors with the acting of those actors and but I, I was thinking about who I would you know cast for Swellen's role because as Maev was already in charcoal she was confirmed in charcoal I didn't know if I wanted to have the same actress in the two films but at the same but at some point I was like oh my god it has to be her you know so I was you know I, I'm like it's it's fine I mean it's so different and I'm going to cast her and Alini Marta who is also in both she was it, it was the opposite she was already in tall and then I called her to do charcoal and I'm so happy you know they are they are both in both films because they are such great actresses they are so different they are so into their characters differently in both films and and for me, what you said is also one of the most important things, you know, in a film, this naturality, this range of emotions that a good actor can reach and the fine tune between humor and drama as well. And, you know, it's it's hard to, to achieve that. And, and those actors are, are so good. How was it matching uh, Juan Alvarenga, Alvarenga uh, with uh, with? Maeve. I had worked previously with Kawan in a short film of mine mm -hmm. in Toronto called The Orphan. It, it was also in Cannes and won the Queer Palm and it, it was a very successful short and he was very good in the film and he was receiving a lot of compliments and he was, you know, uh, very beginning to be confident in becoming a professional actor and so it was really interesting to follow this path you know because when i worked with him like uh five years ago he was 13 and now he's 18 i mean he was 17 to 18 when we worked with him in tall and he was already almost a man let's say a, 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 a young man but at the same time he has this spirit that is very childish at the same time which which is good you know brings a lot of freshness and it so it was it was almost working with like this free this like this childish thing in a good way you know that, that has no bounds in terms of what people are expecting and everything and Maeve Maeve is such an experienced talented actress and I I enjoy very much this mix of you know this the child actors or the non-actors who are trying who are who are free you know and I think when they are working together with an actress like Maeve, who is so experienced, who so talented, who has such a technique, it brings something different. You know, it's a it's a merge that works very well because it it has to have a point in the middle of it, which is naturality. Otherwise, it doesn't work at all. So it just have one path to to go to work. You know, so they. You know, they both are trying to reach it. And they're very successful. Maeve and uh, Alina uh, work as toll booth operators. And your film deals with, you know, hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of, you know, uh, her her friend, Telma, telling um, Suellen Maeve that, you know, I know a pastor who can convert your son. And, you know, he works with other people in the in the village on their problems never anywhere does she say they're cured of anything <laughs> and um the fact that you know she's a hypocrite and recognizes that she's a hypocrite but says oh you know these things these things happen and also the fact that Suellen loves her son but she's willing to commit a crime in order to raise money to send her son to conversion therapy because she believes that she's doing something right but she's doing something wrong at the same time and i remember last time you said in charcoal that in brazil uh people would rather say from charcoal you said people some people would rather see their children dead than be gay was that again a major reason for you to make toll it's exactly that you know i mean there was like this president that said that the president former president said stated that in public that he would rather have a dead son than a gay son i mean imagine what the most important the most powerful public figure when 
he says that what it means to a society, what it teaches to someone who is, you know, raising a kid and two kids and everyone. And also, I mean, there was this, this very famous, unfortunate uh, murder here, which like a, was a kind of a serial killer who would kill boys and, you know, it was horrible. And he would state also to, you know, the psychologist who was following his case that he would he would confirm that he is a murderer and that he's a pedophile, but no, gay, he wouldn't accept to be called gay. And that's often the case with the with people who have this animosity towards um, uh, people who are homosexual is that they, especially with men, they link it with pedophilia, which is something completely different and they refuse to see the difference. Uh, getting back to the actors, I believe that Maeve is trying to do the best for her son, but at the same time, she doesn't see that what she is doing is going to cause him could potentially cause him harm. What is the state of conversion therapy in Brazil? It is forbidden to psychiatrists or psychologists to to portray it. But at the same time, there, there are laws that are going on that, you know, intend to forbid that there is any conversion code, let's say like that, at all. But at my, by now, if someone uh, wants to portray some... A conversion course or something like that it is not it is legal you know it's still legal it's crazy you know you set this film deliberately in uh Cubatao. uh mm -hmm. why was that because i was always fascinated by Cubatão. is a city that you know leads sao paulo to the beach side and it's as well as the film as as well as that mother it's very uh, film a uh, place that is full of contradiction is is an industrial pole and it's gray and it's dirty and you know foggy but it's surrounded by atlantic forests so very beautiful at atlantic forest and i mean it's an environment that you love and hate so and it's fascinating aesthetically fascinating and even when you are in the city when we were like with the crew and we we're like oh my god we are going to spend two months in Cubatão it's going to be weird and at the time we were there we were so happy to be there so and the city is indeed very gray and and you know but it has something it has something it has that forest so this mixed feelings you know it's city that that gets in you to it gets you to feel these mixed feelings and i think it was very pertinent to the situation in the film very pertinent to this contradiction to this almost uh, seeing things in more than a way you know how often uh were you able to get uh maeve in an actual toll booth did she study with someone as to what to do <laughs> yeah, she did. We, we visited a lot of toll. Actually, it was a, a huge challenge to shooting the toll because it, it was a real toll, a toll that didn't stop working in a huge uh, road. Sao Paulo is a huge city like New York, as you know. So, I mean, it's it was very, very crazy. So we did go there a lot of times to visit and Maevi were, were there also a couple of days and she spent the day with the tall booth person and she was speaking with them and seeing how how they say she does a lot of research and i think this is one of the reasons why she's so good and natural and seeing how they would dress and how how they their vanity they are always like trying to look very beautiful and they are very interesting women they are always like like you know they're they have kids, but they sleep like three hours a day and it's a very tough work, you know. So she was always going there and and trying to speak to these women and see how they, they behaved in talk. Carolina, thank you so much for doing this uh, short interview with me. I saw the film on a screener. I'm hoping I can actually see it on the big screen when it premieres at TIFF. And hopefully, maybe this time I can actually meet you in person. But thank you very much for uh, speaking with me today. That would be so awesome, Donna. Hope to see you soon. And thank you so much.
Thank you. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. Joining me now is the cast from Death of a Whistleblower, a South African film that will be screening at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. My name is Ian Gabriel. I'm a film director from South Africa, and I've been a film director for quite a long time. Uh, hi, I'm Kathleen Stevens, and I'm an actor based in Cape Town, South Africa, and I play Asta Patel in the movie Death of a Whistleblower. Uh, my name is Nopolo Damini. Uh, I'm also a South African-based uh, actress, and I play Luanda. I'm Inez Robertson. I'm an actor based in Cape Town, and I play Emma Lowe. Hi, my name is Sitandiwe, so at least there's an I there, so it makes it easier. Sitandiwe or Star or Sitandi for short, and I play, I'm a South African-based um, actress as well, and I play the baddie. Anthony, am I pronouncing your last name right? Oseyemi. Okay. All right. How are you doing? And uh, tell us who you play in the movie. I play Mohale Labaka, one of the the villains. I'm running around with Standiwe doing evil (laughs) (laughs) and having a great time. So from the title, uh, the audience can uh, can guess that there is some sort of whistleblowing happening um, in South Africa. So, Ian, starting with you, why did you want to make this film? Well, I, I, there's a, a whole raft of reasons, but one, one of the um, reasons come, that comes right out of the title is uh, the question of the death of whistleblowers. Um, wherever they are in the world, it, there happen to be several whistleblowers in South Africa who've died uh, violent deaths in the last 10 years. Um, and those have been people whistleblowing on ver- a, ver- a variety of subjects, usually uh, subjects that are related to corruption and illegal um, taking of monies from government purses, from public funds and so on. Our film is uh, more broadly about the question of um, secrets in South Africa that have, that have um, remained after the end of apartheid and, and, uh, and secrets that have evolved with uh, development of business into the rest of Africa. So that is, that's the, the factual background to this fictional story, which is a, a story about Luyanda Masindo, who's an investigative journalist who sets out to uncover um, what's happening when, when uh, a whistleblower that she's um, involved with uh, gets killed. How did you come to have this wonderful cast? A lot of insistence on my part that I wanted the best, best people in the country. Knox, you are the um, investigative journalist. Tell me how you felt about playing this role. Um, when I first got the script, I, uh, I was firstly excited, obviously, because I love telling true South African stories. And I love stories that kind of that tell about our history and uh, where we come from. And uh, um, so I was really interested in that. And I love... I don't know, for some reason, political stories find me. Uh, but uh, I, I think I think uh, because of that, I really just wanted to, to tell a story about a part of our history that I didn't even know about. And um, I think to be trusted to play it was really, uh, it was an honor. And getting to meet Ian, who who then met me at my callback, that, that was, yeah, it was definitely one of the reasons I wanted to be a part of it because... Um, of the director that was a part of it and uh, just the story that we're telling. There's a bit of physicality with your role. Did you train before this or were you always interested in, in boxing? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been doing my Thai for a couple of years now. And it, it was really lovely because Ian didn't know I did my Thai. So <laughs> when he found out that I do, he was like, perfect. We're adding that in. <laughs> So it was really, I appreciated that. I really appreciated yeah. that. Um, so I am, I'm quite a physical person. So I, I think I was pretty ready for the role, you know, so yeah. While I was watching the film, you um, reminded me of an actress from, I think it's either the 70s or the early 80s. Uh, there was an American TV show called uh, Get Christy Love. I want you to look that up because they need to make a movie with you starring as this, you know, <laughs> intrepid uh police woman so it was very good to see um you know women 
fighting back. But I'm going to move on to the rest of the cast. Mm -hmm. And Ershad, since you've joined us, welcome. Tell us about the character that you play, because we watch you doing something very secretive. Uh, so share with my audience the the name of your character and the department where you work in. Yeah, so my character's name is Albert Lewis, and he um, he works for the South African National Defense Force, which is the like the army. And um, he's whistleblowing on on something that the army's been doing, which is spending money in the way that they're not supposed to be spending. And how the in South Africa we have something called state capture, where everything every entity we own almost feels like it's been captured and and not really serving the people but other people the elites are making money off it i even feel afraid saying that <laughs> as a south african you know <laughs> you, gotta watch, you gotta watch what you say you know that's just how it is in south africa and this is the truth and um and, and whistleblowers die in south africa this is also the truth you know so um and so my character goes beyond what he's supposed to and he once and he blows the whistle so on 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 defense on, on on how defense contracts are going to to people and organizations that that don't deserve them. Inez, could you tell us about your character at the beginning without revealing too much? Yeah, I think Emma was a really interesting character to play because she has such a small part in the greater scheme of things, but she kind of just is this drop of oil in the water. And she is a person that existed before Leander's story. Basically, Emma is this person who existed who shouldn't really matter um, in the the greater scheme of things when it comes to Leander's story. But Leander kind of uncovers this moment that Emma existed um, and was, I guess, affected by um, all of these dealings going on um back in the 80s and she is an individual that you know doesn't matter to anybody except her loved ones that have lived past her and have had to carry this memory of of what happened to her and that nothing happened to the people who did it to her and I guess she she that's how she changes the world or changes anything um about what is happening with the things that Leander is uncovering. Sithandi Way, tell us about your yes. character. To General Tuliaza is literally what I call the face of corruption um, in, in the South African political context, because many times, as we would know that historically, a lot of countries can relate to the South African apartheid story. And ours was obviously as tragic as, you know, as a lot of other political countries that went through apartheid, obviously calling it something else that had to deal with segregation. And then within that, for her to general to Lee as my character, I say she could have chosen to say because historically she, you know, she was disadvantaged, but then her choices were not like Luyanda's, for example, of saying, let me stand up, stand up for what is good. And she chose to be the sort of at the center or the, 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 the middle person or the middleman in terms of making these, the chemical warfare that were going on and all the other corruption things that were continuing to happen in South Africa. She made herself available, whether for, you know, people make decisions for maybe greed or for maybe revenge or, you know, in, in terms of whatever happened to them or their families. But that's basically who she is because I don't give too much away about... No, you um, can't. The, the okay, story. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. going to move on to another bad guy, menacing bad guy. <laughs> Anthony, please tell us um, about the role you play. I am the, the guy you call to dispose of the bodies I am him. I'm your hitman, your mercenary, coming from a military background, but also understanding the the space politically within which he's playing and serving other people. So I spend a lot of time tying up those loose ends. And probably in the real world, I'd be one of those people who dispose of the whistleblowers. Served in the army, much like Ishad's character. But then after a while, 
disillusioned, steps back, becomes a gun for hire because there's money, there's a security in it. Excuse the <laughs> the pun in terms of the security, but for him as a as somebody who needs to eat, live, and has a specific set of skills, that's where he comes into it. And it's not that he is amoral or doesn't understand what's happening, but for him, it's a means to an end. It's a job. It serves a purpose, and and that's why he does it. Kathleen, you are the ally. You are the ride or die for um, Luanda, and you play Asha Patel. So, uh, yeah. Tell me about um, the background of your story, because you and uh, Luanda were in a school together. Tell me about that sort of history. I think what's really great about these two characters is that they share a real great love for one another. They're very loyal to one another. I think that, as you say, Asta is definitely that ride or die, introvert, extrovert kind of person. Um, <clears throat> and they've definitely, uh, Luyanda and Asta have grown up together. They share uh, things in common. Um, both of them are orphans um, in some type of way. And I think sort of those kinds of losses have brought them closer and closer together. And what I think I absolutely love about her character is that um, she has this profound sense of caring and, again, love for her friend that it kind of forces her out of her comfort zone, um, you know, to make sure that she's okay to help her on this journey. So, yeah. You and Luanda have quite a lot of scenes uh, together. Um, What was that rehearsal process like for you, Kathleen? No, Paula is just horrible to work with. It's just chaos. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was absolute, It was just fun. I can't. Just, I know the the movie is quite intense and it's action packed. And but I, what I I mean when I was on set, it was just it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of banter. Um, yeah, I would get a lot of stories. Like I would come in and be like, we're shooting a really chill scene. And then Knox would be like, I've just run ran on roofs the night before. So let's get this done. I was like, fair. <laughs> Amidst everything, there's a lot of professionalism. And what I really loved about Ian is he, he really let us run uh, with the text and play. But he has an incredible ability to just reel us back in and just, you know, center us to be able to tell the story in a very truthful way. Um, but I think overall for me, it was just a really amazing experience. Knox, can you share the experience of, of working with Kathleen and your scenes? <laughs> <laughs> I first met Kathleen uh, at our first rehearsal, uh, but before that, I checked her out and checked out what she done. You know, and it's so crazy that when we did meet, I feel like we—it was so easy to connect. You know. Mm. Um, it's almost like Ian saw you and saw me and was just like, their energies are so similar, you know, um, yeah. they would create just a great connection on and off screen. So um, I appreciated that a lot. It was so easy to uh, work with Kathleen and we're similar and so different, but I was, I think our, our, our humor is so alike that playing around and getting comfortable with each other was so easy. And I think it's the best uh when having to be intimate with someone and intimate in the sense that we're friends and we have to yeah. be vulnerable with one another. And, um, so it was really easy. It was absolutely easy. And yeah, it was a great time on set. As she said, it was really, it was a best time on set. This movie, uh, Ian, is filled yeah. with women. Not to discard the men on, yes. the, on the panel right <laughs> yes. now, But yes. this movie is filled with women. You know, first of all, uh, as as Inez says, that Emma is the root of the whole story, and and yes, because because she's the root of the story, I thought it should be a a woman's story. It should be about um, a woman who might have been someone else might have thought, oh, yeah, the victim. And I I said to Inez right at the beginning that I didn't see her as a victim. I saw I saw her as the one who was standing up and fighting. So strongly that eventually her influence was overlapping beyond her life into the next generation. Um, and I loved that idea about her. Um, I also warned her that I was going to put her through a, a lot of really tough scenes, which um, I, I sort of half flinched from shooting when, when we were finally 
up there doing the work. Um, but she was fantastically brave, as, as I knew she would be. And then Noxie and, and Kathleen were, were both, as you see them now today in this interview, and, but, and I think the, the most exciting thing for me then was to finally come up with Sutandiwe and, and have this other strong, powerful woman finishing off the, the, the whole group of women in the film. So I was quite sort of fascinated by that as, as, a, as a central motif in the film. Not to say I didn't love Anthony and Ershad. Uh, and Dirk. <laughs> it has. Um, how many days did you spend running in that nightgown? Tell me what Ian put you through in that nightgown. A full 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my wardrobe was minimal. Um, but I think... And, and, she, and she had no shoes. Right, exactly. And I had no shoes. We did yeah. try. We really did try to make some kind of <laughs> covers for my feet. But and I think in the end, Emma was running out of every It didn't make sense for you. Had. Yeah, it didn't make sense for you to have shoes, actually. Yeah. No, so yeah. so yeah. I really, and, and I she, thought. And she, she, was, she was so courageous, sorry to jump in like that, but she was incredibly courageous. She just kept on running on this horrible ground. Uh, it yeah. was unbearable to watch, but great to watch. So thank you. At some point, the adrenaline just takes over. <laughs> and I think, you know, if we're going to get the shot, let's get the shot. Because um, that's the thing, right? The story, when I see myself there running, I don't think about all of the takes that we did or how hard the ground was or how tired I was. I think about the story and the character that Ian asked me to play with respect and with um, bravery and when she's there on the stage on the on the screen um that's all that matters at the end of the day that she is part of the story and she plays her part in telling the story that i think is really really important anthony on to you i just want to um shout out your scene in the bar you meet up with uh luyanda and you know her name um i was like I'm not like Lu- Luyanda. I'm sorry. I'm a coward. It's like, <laughs> Anthony, once I saw you sitting next to me in the bar, I would say, okay, um, I don't know anything. I'm done. <laughs> you're, so, you're so threatening. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting because uh, Ian was saying, the the because we did the scene a couple of times and he made the point to me just as an actor, as a performer and with the character that the thing about being threatening is you're not threatening. <laughs> you're just really... <laughs> really just honest and calm and, and to the point and you talk facts and you talk business and you, and you don't get ruffled and that's the threatening part that's the part where you're like ah but of course with Knox's character she's aware of who and what I am once she gets to grips with the situation she, she it clicks for her. Ersha tell me about shooting those scenes with the umbrella in the rain. Oh my god it was cold um <laughs> look <laughs> I Ian, Ian's very good. Ian's, Ian's, I just want to also say Ian's a very, very good director. I've worked with him before and he's, he's, he's got a way of getting things out of you. Um, he's got a way, Ian's got this very strange way of making you feel very calm, but the stakes are always there and he, he allows you to, um, he, he allows you to explore. But in that park over there when we were walking, it was quite tough. Um, it was cold. We had to we had to kind of match every shot all the time. And um, when Ian explained to me, it was it took me a, a, a minute to get to what he wanted. But he wanted pace in that scene. I haven't seen the film yet. I don't know how it looks. But when I realized, oh, this is what it's about. It's like draw. We're driving this, the the movie at the moment with the scene. That's when we. That's when I gave it. And there was a lot of dialogue there. God, there was a lot of dialogue. There was pages yes. and there was a monologue, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I have to wrap, but Ian, I, I want to thank you for those scenes with the trees reminding us of the beauty of South Africa while all of this yes. corruption is happening. So yeah. everyone, thank you so sure. much. I wish I could spend an hour um, with you, <laughs> uh, but it's been fantastic meeting you all. Thank you. Great, thank you. You listen to The More the Merrier with Donna G on CIUT 89.5 FM. The film Boil Alert will be screening at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. And joining me to talk about Boil Alert is the co-director, Stevie Salas. And Stevie, I understand that you uh, 
your co-director is James Burns. So tell me how the two of you got together on this project. Well, you know, I've been producing TV and film now. I just, you know, I was in the music business my whole life and I started to kind of get into producing TV in 2006. And um, I was getting into the producing thing and I wanted to learn a little bit more about directing. And I started working with James Burns quite a few years ago. We were working on a project with Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas. And we were really getting into this issue of Native people like Taboo and myself, who, like, I grew up surfing on the beach in San Diego. My father joined the Marines, you know, left uh, Wyoming, and my mother's family left New Mexico. And I was born on the beach surfing. Always knew I was an indigenous person. I was Apache. I knew this. Always knew it. But, you know, I just grew up like a kid surfing, like everybody else, skateboarding, playing guitar. And Taboo had a story similar and where he didn't really know who he was. He really was because his when he was one years old, his mother married a Chicano guy. They moved to East L.A. and he was brought up like, you know, wearing zoot suits and stuff. And But, you know, he always had this weird feeling in his head about, you know, why he danced the way he danced. And like Apple from the Peas would say he didn't dance like the black guys, but he didn't act dance like the white guys. You know, he, he just never felt like right till he went to visit his grandmother. And she said, you should show me, you know what I mean? And, and uh, he was like, oh, wow, you know, he's 12 years old and it all starts to come clear. So we were fascinated by these kind of stories. And um, that's sort of where this process started with Boil Alert in some ways. And how did you meet up with uh, Layla? Layla, I work on Six Nations in Canada. And um, I met Layla there because her brother Logan is a musician. And I don't know if you know, but I was in the music business my whole life. And uh, I met Layla. She was singing with Logan. And, and I had a pretty big music doc that's on Netflix called Rumble that I made that's doing really well. And Logan loved the film and Layla loved the film. And then uh, Layla made her own film about water. And we were, me and my partner, Brian Porter from Seam Red Six Nations and Dreamcatcher, we were spending our own money and our own time going into Indian reservations in, in Canada and in North America and putting water filtration systems in with, with a company called Sawyer Water. And we didn't want to wait for the government to get around to it because they just were never getting around to it, right? So we said, look, we're just going to do it ourselves and spend our own money. And then the government would write us and go, hey, what are you guys doing? How can we help? So Layla had made her own little film about water, a short doc, a uh, low-budget thing, but we thought it was pretty fascinating. And and Layla was another person who was brought up on the res as a little kid with her grandfather, then left to live in the city and had real identity issues, not knowing who she was. And so that's sort of what got us back into it. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Boil Alert is the fact that it's uh, it's personal. It's uh, Layla takes us through the story because many of us have seen, um, you know, uh, Wet'suwet'en, Apawatiskat. And um, so we've seen, we know about the boil alerts, but it it comes and then it fades. But with this film, um, the fact that Layla is part of it makes this film a little different because first of all, we see uh, the impact of you know, the racism and the lack of culture from a woman, from a, a mom mm-hmm. who wants the best for her children. And she, all, she also wants to know who who she is, because she is one of the consequences of what happened to her grandfather and the people that came before. So she's this continuation. So she is fascinating. And the places that she goes to um is fascinating. And that's what makes this film um, watchable. Um, I don't think once people see this film, they're going to dismiss this issue again. So tell me how you and Layla decided which uh, reservations, which areas you were going to visit. Well, what happened was, let me get, I'll go back a little bit farther. Um, James was, is a, Pretty, was a pretty high-end director, like the senior director at Vice. He, and he works at Nat Geo and he does this. He's used to making these hard-hitting, you know, he'll be with the cartel in Mexico and just doom buggy in with the, you know, the, you know drug cartel leaders. And, I mean, he gets down into these really hardcore um, type of pieces. And But James is a real sensitive guy. And 
we thought we don't just want to make a doc that's like a doc. Here's what's going on in Indian country. Here's what's screwed up. And isn't this shitty? Um, we, we got kind of bold. We wanted to make a dual doc, something that I don't think, I don't know if it's been done yet. I'm not going to say we're the first ones, but it was something that I've never seen. And it was our, it was, it was a really ambitious thing to do. We wanted a dual doc, a doc about a woman who's trying to find herself and, and fill a hole in her soul that she hasn't been able to figure out how to fill. She's tried everything. Am I a drug addict? Am I a lesbian? Am I straight? Am I, am I an alcoholic? Am I, a, you know, am I, am I going to go to church? I mean, you know what I mean? Everything trying to figure it out. And it comes back to her teachings of her grandfather on the reservation where she, all of a sudden she feels grounded. She understands maybe if she can save the water, maybe she can save herself, you know, and this is a story about that, but the story of what's going on, and the injustice was super important too. So we we tried. It was really hard to do. We tried to find this piece that that balanced between those two stories, where she's using the injustice as her inspiration to keep going and and get something done. And and and, and it's and it's healing her and and helping her. You know, we all have these issues. You know, am I Indian enough? That was the thing I kept saying. You know, am I Indian enough? I wrote these long poems about. Am I Indian enough? Am I Am I this? Am I that? You know, because you're constantly made to feel about, you know, your insecurities of, I think I'm pretty cool, but that maybe I'm an idiot, you know? And I just thought we would try to do that. And then when it came down to picking the locations, we shot for four years or so. So we shot a ton of locations that aren't in the film. Um, some of the locations we had the help of Daryl Larson at Sawyer Water because he was wanting to go into these places and clean up these water problems. And we wanted to go clean them up. Um, some of the things came more through our research through the Ashinaabe Nation. Um, you know, we made a film called The Water Walker about a young water protector. And we learned a lot about from her and her people what was going on. So we would go to these locations and we would dig into what kind of stories were there. And, and we settled with where we were at. And then in the end, Wet and Sweatin' was uh, really, Logan, Layla's brother, was up there playing music and found out about it and she went up there and she really got tight with that group and called us and said hey man we got to do this and so James and I were like let's go you know and but we shot a lot of locations because there's an endless amount of I mean I think there's over 1100 communities on boil alerts in North America which is disgusting you know I can and I can't believe how long it's been going on it's like the government um acts so slowly and there's such indifference in the wider community about what's going on that people just think oh the government says they're doing something so it must be done by now and then you see a 40 million water plant 40 million dollar water plant that's not working and you see and you see bottles being um, flown in and you see the water bottles and you see the fact that there's no recycling and everything is so intertwined and seems hopeless at times but your film I think does give a sense of hope because people are fighting back I think her name is Eloise Brown Mm-hmm. From the Navajo Nations. Mm-hmm. From the Navajo Nation, where she walked out and stopped the trucks. Yeah. Yes. Also, the one that has radioactive rocks, where she, her mailbox is. And, you know, with Oppenheimer being one of the most popular films out right now. And I'm not saying that Oppenheimer's not a, a, a hero and he saved a ton of lives in the end, probably, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not knocking on him at all. But nobody bothers to think about in Oppenheimer what happened afterwards, you know. And when you watch Oppenheimer, he says, I want to close, uh, um, you know, Los Alamos down. And uh, they, they said to him, why? What would you do with the land? He goes, give it back to the Indians. Well, they kept it going. And now nobody thinks about it. What, 50, 60 years later, however it's been, I don't know the exact number. Um, we got a ton of radioactivity up there. And people living with radioactivity all over their yard and all over their house and all over their, their water. And they're, and they're dying of cancer. And it's not, and it's not on anyone's radar. Yeah. You know, Oppenheimer, I have my problems with, especially with that um, Nagasaki second bombing. But anyway, 
Yeah. Um, moving on to. Hey, by the way, by the way, I, I went to um, when I was on tour, my very first tour of Japan. You know, when I was in music business when I was a kid, and I once I went to that museum. I, I swear to God, I would never say ah, we had a nuke those guys. I'd never say something random like that ever again. It was so mind blowing, and you know, I, I just think you know, I just think that if people could be more aware, you know, people think that people don't care. People think that people are just like whatever. But I think most of the most dangerous thing on this planet is lack of awareness because lack of awareness causes confusion, which makes like native people think white people hate them or nobody cares. And a lot of it is just people aren't aware. So if you can create this film and like you and you're watching it and you're like, holy cow, man, this is crazy. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, 11 year old children shouldn't be committing suicide because they see such hopelessness around them. And that hopelessness is caused by, you know, the mercury poisoning mm -hmm. in their water in, you know, in grassy narrows. Yeah. The girl, the girl who said, um, you know, I know my life's probably going to be cut short because of the mercury poisoning, but I'm still like, you know, she was just so still so positive. I, I hate to tell you this, but she actually passed away a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks yeah. ago. And yeah. it's, it's like, it's just crushing. It's just crushing. And, and if, you know, I think if people can, you know, I, like again, it's just, people just need to be more aware. I mean, nobody would believe there's a, a whole town full of water, full of mercury. There's no, people wouldn't believe there's a whole, you got to walk through a, a, a people's land with a Geiger counter and it's going bonkers. I mean, people would be like, no way that's impossible. Right. I mean, how could we ever let something like that happen? But when it's on an Indian reservation, you can easily say, well, who's going to pay for it? And well, it's sovereign land. Now it's sovereign land. It's not our problem. It's sovereign land, you know, but it was sovereign land. We can go on that sovereign land and give them guys a few bucks and trick them into letting us do it there. You know, it's, it's, I've learned from working on Six Nations with a super successful group of indigenous people there that have figured out issues with sovereignty and how to get around it and using legal, true legal ways that if you have the money, you can fight these things. But most people just don't have the money to, to fight the government. Yeah, exactly. And the thing with the mercury is the multi-generational effects of yes. the cancer yes. so you know i'm watching a little girl dance for instance and i wonder how much longer do you have to live and if you grow up and you are able to have children what is the impact going to be on those children and it breaks my heart it breaks my heart um because the people were not told about, uh, you know, the devastation that would come. They were not told about these spills, about the, you know, uranium being buried. So it's, and the government tried to, you know, brush it off. It's yeah. like, oh, you know, you're, you're stumbling around. You must be drunk. Um, meanwhile, yeah. it's the impact of mercury poisoning. Yes. Yeah. You, you know, the thing I'm not, I'm no doctor and all this was new to me too, but it was like the, the weird thing is, is usually you think about, well, I have something in my blood and then I breathe out with somebody else and it gets a little less and over time it gets a little less and a little less your, your genetics change. Right. But with mercury, from what I understand is that the child actually gets a stronger dose. Uh, yes. Mom's pregnant. And so the child actually comes out more poisoned and it's an opposite effect, which is just mind blowing to me. Yeah. That was a revelation to me too. The fact that the child was getting three times the amount of radiation um, of, of poisoning than the mom. And it all goes back to, to greed and not valuing the first nations people. You said it took four years to make this documentary. Um, was that a budgetary concern or you did it when opportunities arose? Um, no, we, you know, there's always a budgetary concern, but we spend our own money. We, we don't like a lot of times in Canada, like when I worked with a company, I wasn't uh, producing, I was an executive producer of my film Rumble, the Indians of the World. And I worked with a Canadian company and they did it sort of standard way work. 
you get a lump of dough and then you fill out a bunch of paperwork and then you wait and then they give you some more dough. So your doc takes forever, but they also spend twice as much on their docs than we spent. We're a Canadian, it's a Canadian doc, but we used our own money. Uh, so it, we watch every penny, of course. But the time it takes, a lot of it is because, you know, you can't film in Northern Canada in the winter. I mean, it's, you can, but it's, you know, it's a bit brutal up there. And, and uh, so we had to shoot in the summers. Um, we also shot, like I said, we shot a lot of locations and stories would, would be would, like we we're on the Yurok Nation in, in Northern California. And there's a real injustice going on with the water there and people couldn't get it. But it turns out their own council of their own people were squishing out that who ran this operation for a long time were squishing out their own people, you know, and then they didn't want to go on record for fear. They wouldn't even be able to go to the laundromat anymore. You know, so you go through all these things and and do people go, do I really want to sit in your documentary and talk and maybe, you know, be, be thrown out of, you know, my tribal, I, I won't have, you have access to anything anymore. You know, there's so much corruption and you know how it is. It's like, there's a lot of corruption. You know, you get, you get, you get, you know, beaten down and then you find yourself getting a teeny bit of power and your first reaction is to beat down the person next to you because that's all you've ever known. And it takes a while to break that cycle the way you stick it. Whoa, 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 I'm not going to, I'm not going to overpower this guy. I'm not going to be King Indian. I'm going to change this. And, and that's just taken a long time to happen. The incorporation of the poetry and dance, where did that idea come from? James and I, when we made the film, The Water Walker, which is a short doc, we had these sections where we were taking on, Peltera was on her trip and traveling, uh, traveling around to speak at United Nations or in Davos with, she was with Greta and all these kids, right? But we would break off and we animated this indigenous artwork from Christy Belcourt and we brought it to life. And Graham Greene, the great Graham Greene, actor Graham Greene, did this narration. And what I realized when I would go to those festivals and watch the film, people would lock into this indigenous sort of feeling that those, those vignettes, uh, animated pieces would bring to the film. They, it was like they were searching for that soul, for that true, deep, spiritual, indigenous feeling of the earth and, and, and poetry or, uh, uh, of, of art. And so when we were doing Boil Alert, we said we need to stop every once in a while and take our film into these dream sequences. And they're meant to be, Layla's meant to be a representation of all of us who don't know who we are and we're trying to find ourselves, especially women. And so we start off our vignettes with Autumn Peltera, who's this young girl and she's going to the water, right? She's trying to, she's in this dreamland in this indigenous dream world of like area in the water. And then Jessica Matten comes out and now she's, in her twenties, she's this beautiful girl in a party dress, but she's but she's she's confident, but she's not. The demons are following her, no matter what. Those demons just keep popping up in her head. You know, um, she looks great, she feels great, but she's there all dirty and barefoot in the middle of this barren, dry death valley, and and it's representing her going into the world, but feeling and looking right, but still feeling like something's wrong and scared and, and intimidated. And then it goes into uh, Santee Smith, where now she's discovering she's getting stronger. She's she's finding balance with her indigenous DNA and her and and DNA and herself in the world and accepting it. She understands her place and how she can understand the planet in a different way, but she's embracing it and feeling power. And in the end, Michelle Thrush is now an older woman representing the same, you know, progression. And she's coming out of the water and she's passing on her, her, her knowledge and her wisdom to the next generation so they don't have to suffer as much. That was the whole idea. We wanted to bring this indigenous journey, sort of dream journey into the story to understand as a part of representation of Layla's journey. Yeah, I'm familiar with uh, Santee Smith and uh, the extraordinary Michelle Thrush. She's the best actress ever, by the way. How did you get her? She's my friend, you know, every oh. all of them friends, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. Did you ever see the movie Rumble? My movie Rumble? No, I haven't seen it. Well, you should um, see it. 
everybody, there's every major rock star in the world is in that movie talking about their love of this and their influence of this indigenous group of musicians. And everyone goes, how'd you get them? And I go, they're my friends. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I have a lot of friends. And, same with, uh, same with um, Christy Belcour, because her Christy work Belcour. is extraordinary. Well, I got lucky. I got to meet Christy because of um, Autumn. And Christy liked Rumble, and Christy knew who I was as a guitar player. There's not that many Native guitar players that work with Mick Jaggers and Justin Timberlakes and all the stuff I've done. And so she knew who I was, and and she trusted us with her art because I think we're the only people that ever animated her art. And uh, she loved Autumn Pelter. So you know, you 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 uh, you get your inroads through however you can, but usually it's about having a good phone book, you know. Have they seen even the rough draft of your film? Nobody, hardly anybody, except, you know, Jessica and Michelle have because their EPs on it. And uh, TIFF will be our premiere. And I've, I've, we just signed with UTA as our sales agent in a comp- really cool company called Utopia. And so obviously they have it now. And and um, but most people haven't seen it. And and I think people are I, I hope, you know, I, we were so insecure with that. This is movie. Is this horrible? Is it awful? And next thing you know, we got into TIFF. And we're like, oh, my God. Maybe it's not so bad, you know, because you get so close, it's hard to tell. But I knew that the stories were breaking my heart and they were crushing me, you know, just crushing me to, to, to know what these people were having to deal with. And then to watch them still in the end say, I love this land. This is my home. And it's still the most beautiful place in the world to me. Even with yeah, all of it, you because know? you know, because a cynic would say, "Well, why don't you just move?" There's a beauty. There's a connection that indigenous people have to their homeland. You know, you know. I drive by. I was driving home from my place in San Diego to my place in Austin, Texas, three or four days ago, and I was driving past the Drangoons in the mountains, and uh, and I'm Apache, and I just feel this draw. I look up in those hills, and I think, where were they up in those mountains? And I, I read the books and the stories, and you know, you just feel it. And, you know, so I don't know how to explain it any other way than that. But that's kind of a crazy thing that with all that bad stuff happening in the end, they still find a way to smile and say, ah, you know, but yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. It's like there's a point in the film where I was thinking, oh, that's so beautiful. And somebody said, it's beautiful, isn't it? But it's poisoned. And I'm thinking that's exactly what the film sums up. And um, but there's still that hopefulness that that young girl um, at Grassy Knolls, the, the young girl that unfortunately passed, it's like she, there there is hope. And as long as there is hope, then the battle will still continue. The people of the earth always have the hope. They're not brought up in schools from their parents and their grandparents to believe that everything's shit and everything's just money. They have different ways of thinking because they had no choice but to think that way. And it, and it, I'm telling you, it's, it's a difference there, but, you know, but you know, the, um, I, I'm going to say something, what you said about the film, it was really important because James and I constantly, constantly talk about the first thing I remember when I flew a helicopter up to go to a, my first res, re, reserve that I was going in with Sawyer to put in water filtrations with, um, scene rad, my, my company, I thought it was the most beautiful place on, I'd ever seen. These lakes with these trees and animals. And it's just like what you admit, uh, you imagine in your mind, this is paradise, right? You know, like, God, I just want to go and dive into that lake. And then you realize that that lake is pure poison. And so we wanted to show this constant beauty. We want to make sure the cinematography was just gorgeous. So you'd get this feeling of that is so beautiful, but it's death. In the, in, the, in the yin and yang of that, it's just so mind-blowing to me, right? So, you know, if I didn't know, if I went hiking and went up to one of those places, I'd probably just go in and drink the water and think I was being Yule Gibbons all down with the earth and, you know, whatever. And, and it, would, it could kill me. It's like a poison paradise. I, I want to thank you for um, including Layla because she is the she's the one that's walking the red road and we're walking, you know, alongside her. And I think she, she makes the difference um, in this type of film. So please thank her for me. I will. And, you know, she had to be so brave. I I, I would talk to her a lot because sometimes she would feel foolish. She would feel she had to have the need to appear strong and powerful to inspire young girls. And I would say, no, I go, 
you got to be real and you got to show them that what they're going through, you're going through too. So that will inspire them more because you're, you're, you're breaking that pattern. So you don't need to worry about looking and in, looking insecure and looking afraid. And it was really hard. It's really hard for Layla, you know, cause it's hard to bear your soul like that. And she had to really give it up. And most people couldn't do that without being some type of fake or whatever. And she really laid it out. So yeah, bravo to, to Layla and because what she had to do was not fun for her. No, because she had to admit some truths to herself. And there were some things that she had to to realize. But you know, that's spirit of being a woman of being a mother and wanting to take care of your child. And she could relate to the other mothers because she's given birth. She's like, you know, what about these moms who are giving birth to babies? Uh, with mercury poison. It's like, that's got to hit. And I think that's why um, Boil Alert uh, is so different. And I wish it much success because everybody needs to see this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to The More The Merrier. For more information about the Toronto International Film Festival, tiff.net, T-I-F-F.net. And to reach me at TMTM with Donna G on Instagram and Facebook. And you can access my podcast via my Instagram. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm.